You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Lucifer's Assault, Philip Edwards will describe Lucifer's downfall and with his new identity, Satan, his attack on God's recreated world. We hope you enjoy today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study past modules, register for future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome to uh, week three of Spiritual Conflict. And uh, this evening we're going to continue the story and look at the, uh, the assault that Lucifer uh, made against the throne of God, really, when he was thrown down. Let's just pray, though, before we start. Heavenly Father, we present ourselves again before you uh, to study and to learn and to understand and for you to speak into our hearts and minds, Lord, that we might... Uh, see more clearly, that we might love you more, that we might be more equipped to follow and uh, live our lives dedicated to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said, we left uh, the story last week with uh, Lucifer's fall. He fell full of pride, remember, and uh, uh, it was his beauty and his splendour, it says, that somehow got to his head. He just saw himself as uh, greater than he was created to be. Corrupted in his thinking, he thought he could actually set up a throne, not above God, but in the heavens equal to God. He somehow successfully persuaded or coerced these angels that were under his control. We're led to believe possibly a third of the heaven's angels were his. They were designated to him. And uh, somehow he persuaded them in this idea of opposing the throne of God, setting up an alternative throne. And uh, as God hears about this plot, he simply casts him out of his presence. Uh, out of the heavens of heavens where he was established with God. He comes down into the heavens. Uh, We think of three heavens, really. There's our atmosphere, which is the first heaven. Then there is a heaven above that, and then God dwells in the heavens of heavens. So uh, Lucifer was cast out into this second heaven, we can call it. We continue the story as it's revealed to us uh, by Isaiah in chapter 14. Uh, There's two or three prophecies I want to bring to you, and it's all about his assault from the earth where he seeks to assault the very throne of God, to displace God. I mean, it's it's crazy when you think about it, but of course, you, you wonder what's in the head of... Uh, megalomaniacs or you wonder what's in the head of despots you know they they're doing things and as a normal person you know we all consider ourselves normal I appreciate that like what what do you what do you think you're doing you know and of course the situation in the war today that we look at it we're thinking what is the 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 Russian leader what's he doing what's in his mind that he would do these things uh, to people and uh we just can't get there. We can't understand that. And so the thinking of Satan, Lucifer, you're not going to understand it. 
uh, you're just not going to get there. Anyway, let's start with the first of these three prophecies, Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds and I will make myself like the Most High. It really is beyond belief, isn't it, that he would actually think those things. But there we go. Verse 12, it talks about him and calls him O Morning Star. Well, we know that is a description of Lucifer before creation. Of all the angels, as I said at the beginning, he was splendid. He was outstandingly beautiful, very talented, very gifted. He was an archangel. He was almost... Uh, when you take away the Trinity, he was the next layer of leadership, of brilliance, really. And that's the position that he held. It says in verse 12 as well, he fell from heaven, cast down to the earth. He corrupted the nations, it says. You who once laid low the nations, or it could say, you who destroyed the nations of the world, that leads us to think, hmm, what was on the earth at that time? Uh, we've been looking at the idea that there was races of people already on the earth when he was cast down. Cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. Were they talking about the nations that were in existence before Adam? Before the world was reconstructed? Is that what the scriptures are driving at? Nations in a pre-Adamic period. Verse 13 and 14, there's one phrase that's repeated uh, five times. I will. The will set in opposition to God is the root of all problems. That's true in our lives, isn't it? If we know God is telling us to do something and we rebel and say no, it's going to only lead to problems, really. We just, we should submit in our lives. And we might not understand what he's asking us to do, and we might not feel comfortable doing it, but we know in the long run, it's the best thing for us. So what does he say? He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. See, he separated himself from God, independent of God, no longer uh, under his uh, directorship, as it were, as all of us should be. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself, he says, like the Most High. How on earth he imagined that was possible, I do not know. To me, all of those phrases give the impression that he is going to lead a rebellion from earth. It's not a rebellion from heaven, because if it was, he wouldn't say, I will ascend, I will go up, I will go above. 
he would have said, I'm here, I will lead, the, but he had been cast down and now he's leading a rebellion, an attempt to storm heaven from earth. In the same way he deceived and corrupted a third of the angels, he deceived and corrupted this pre-Adamic nation that's on the earth. Somehow, because he was responsible for them, in some ways he was the king of this earth then, the king of the world prior to God's reconstruction. They, in a sense, uh, were giving him lordship. Uh, although they worshipped God, he was the appointed one to direct them and to minister to them. And so uh, it was easy for him perhaps to cause them to give all their attention to him and not to God. Mm. I wonder if that happens sometimes in churches where we, we look and see the leader and somehow our attention is drawn to him or to her, usually to him in this case, instead of all the attention being directed to God. I was told when I was in ministry, I was only ever a signpost. Don't forget that, Philip, you're a signpost. You're pointing to the one, it's not you. So even if people come to you and think it's you, you just, you say, well, I can help you, but it's him, it's him. But somehow Lucifer, instead of doing that, he, he caused himself to be the one that was seen. Isaiah then prophesies a future event for us. When Jesus returns and defeats Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet at the Battle of Armageddon, unlike the Antichrist and the false prophet who were cast into the lake of fire, we read about that, we'll read about that in a minute, Satan isn't cast into the lake of fire at that time. He is bound and cast into the abyss, into the pit or uh, the deep and the entrance is sealed over until his judgment. So the idea is that he is bound for a thousand years and then after a thousand years he is released again and then he's finally cast into the lake of fire. That's how this is often interpreted. Let's look at this second prophecy, Isaiah 14, 16 and 17, talking about the people who see Satan at the end. Those who see you stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and he made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home. I think that's talking about this pre-Adamic race still. I think that's what Isaiah's saying. This man who made the world a desert, see, his, when he was cast down, he destroyed the earth. He made it like a desert. Who overthrew his cities and would not let his captives go home. We know the whole population of the earth, probably at that time, came under his control and all of them were condemned. None of them lived to go home and to be with him. One more prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah 24 and 1. 
See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and he's going to devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. Well, God's never done that. He's never done that. He has never devastated the earth and scattered his inhabitants. Well, never since the time of Adam anyway. But before Adam, he did that very thing. In his judgment, that's what he did. He just finished with the whole thing. And he scattered all the inhabitants. This is not how the end of the world is presented to us, is it, that God will do that? So I think it's about a pre-Adamic race and a pre-Adamic world that he's talking about there, Isaiah. The restoration, then, of this earth. In Genesis 1, it's the only verse that actually speaks of creation. The following verses, and we've looked at this in earlier weeks, the following works, uh, verses, they speak of restoration. In the beginning, God created, and then I've suggested there's a break there in history, and then the world is formless and without shape, that is God reconstructing this earth that has been judged by God. All of these things that we've been talking about over the last two or three weeks, they've all happened. And now he's going to restore things. When Lucifer fell, his fall brought sudden destruction to the earth. It was so destroyed by Lucifer, it was... It was Everything was just a mess and the people were in rebellion and I'm sure that God had tried to appeal to them as he did the angels possibly. Uh, When there was the rebellion in heaven, we don't know how long God put up with that. See, God is really patient. He's long-suffering. So it wasn't just one whiff of rebellion and out you go with all those angels. He probably tried to work with them as he does with us today. He's, he's long-suffering with us. He's very patient with us. And he probably would have been there at the beginning. And as he saw the rebellion that was happening on earth when Satan was cast down, he tried to possibly work with the people on earth as well to try and win them, but they were lost. They were following Lucifer. So in this devastation that's happened and in this uh, everything that's... God just judges the earth. He floods the earth. It's finished. There's no hope. There's no way he can restore it or redeem it or bring it back to what it needed to be. He said, it's, it's finished. You say, well, no, why did God do that? We see a repetition of that. Don't we? Well, we see it with Noah as a repetition of it. He did it. He said, I can't work with this. I've got to get rid of it. And we'll look into what happened there. But also he did it with the children of Israel in the desert, didn't he? He called Moses to him and he said, these people, I can't work with them anymore. They're grumbling and complaining and so rebellious. I'll just just wipe them all out. We'll start again with you. Like he did with Noah, we'll start again with you. So I'm not suggesting something that isn't out of the character of God. God is patient and God will work. But in the end, God says, My spirit will not always strive with you. It comes to a point where it's best to just cut your losses and move on. And it appears this is what he does here. 
So he floods the earth completely. I think there were two great floods. I think there was a pre-Adamic flood, and again there was a flood at the time of Noah. Let's have a look at this uh, pre-Adamic flood then. The earth was destroyed because of Lucifer's rebellion. When he invaded the heaven, it says he was flung to the earth, and the earth was destroyed. So the Lord flooded the earth, and he sealed the heavens. The sun and the stars no longer shone in the heavens. He floods the earth so it becomes just a water mass. Just, it's all flooded. Then he, he seals up the heavens. If you sealed the sun off from the earth that was flooded, you'd only end up with one thing, a massive ball of ice and nothing else. And that's what's left of the earth. It's just a massive ball that's in our uh, universe. The sun was not created in Genesis 1. It was created possibly billions of years before the restoration we read about in Genesis. When God said, let there be light, so we can look at this in our, our Bibles if we go to uh, Genesis 1 there, if you've got your Bibles with you. It says in verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Hmm. Was he creating light? Why doesn't it simply say that God created light? It doesn't say that. He said, Let there be. Let there be is, is more to do with permitting something to happen. Let this person go through. Permit this to happen. So the idea of the word even, let it, is not a creative term. It's not. I mean, if he created something, in the beginning God created. We understand that. But to say to let it happen means to permit it. To permit light to do what? To shine again. See, he had sealed it up, as it were, in the heavens, and now he was speaking that it could shine again. Not only the sun, but the stars as well. In Genesis 1.6, it says, God let there be an expanse between the waters. What does he mean by this expanse between the waters? So he says to the, the sun and the stars, let there be light. So as soon as the sun starts to shine again and the brightness of the sun, this ball of ice that I've suggested to you, it starts to melt. And so it becomes just a watery mass, as it were, the world. And so then he says he separates the waters from the waters. So he draws up from the earth water. And so what we end up with is the water that's on the earth, the oceans and the seas and that sort of thing. And then we get a, another sphere of water that's all around the earth. And that is what they say that the earth was like as God uh, reconstructed it. It never rained. They said it never rained until Noah went into the ark and it rained, which was uh, 1,500 years after 
the creation. So it never rained. There were springs that came up, it says, if we read those early chapters of Genesis, and they watered everything. And, and because of the rarefied atmosphere, people lived a long, long time. In this atmosphere, there was no sickness or disease. Plants just, just were wonderful. The way they grew it wasn't difficult. To, and so it was a completely different world that they enjoyed. The atmosphere then, as the waters were drawn up, this was considered a heaven or the skies. The first heaven. In Genesis 9, it said, God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. You see, you get this expression, let it happen all the time. He's not saying he's making it. He's saying, I'm, I'm putting something back together that already existed. I'm, I'm saying, let it happen, let it happen. And so we see the separation now of the water and the land as the earth, as he wants it, starts to take shape. The earth once covered with water, but now the land is appearing as he moves it. In Genesis 11 it says, God said, let the land produce vegetation, just let it grow forth again. The seed was already there, it just had to germinate again and come forth. God then restored vegetation. In 1 Genesis 14, God said, let there be a light in the expanse of the sky. You said, Philip, we've already had the light. Well, yeah, but what we didn't have, we didn't have the sun and the moon. This is what he's talking about now, that they could come again and they could function as it were a day. So he definitely wasn't creating the light, otherwise he created the light twice. Well, he wouldn't have done that. It was already there. It had been there for a long, long time. He let it shine and now he said, now we're going to create day and night, day and night. And so he let the moon and the sun and the stars all play their part. What does it say in 16? God made two great lights. Hmm. If it was a creation, why didn't he create them? He said, oh, Phil, first you won't let us get away with the word let being creation. Now you won't let us get away with the word made being creation. No, no. If you create something, you make it from nothing, don't you? Absolutely from nothing. If you make something, you gather the things that you've got together and you make something from what you have. So what he's saying, the things that were already there, he made them from what they were. He made again the sun and the stars and the, and the moon to, to do what it was meant to do. So we had day and night and day and night and day and night. Well, we were here, let me jump into verse 6. I'll read this to you. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the waters from the waters. I know we've already looked at that. So God made the expanse and he separated the waters under the expanse from the waters above it. And it was good. So God, uh, uh, sorry, and it was so. God called the expanse sky and there was an evening and there was a morning and it was the second day. In all the other examples where he said, let there be, he said it was good. In this one, he doesn't say it was good. He said it was so. Now he's thinking, why change it? 
If we got it was good, it was good, it was good. How come when he creates the skies, he doesn't say it's good? Now, we don't know. Like lots of things, we don't know unless he shows us somewhere else in Scripture. But some have suggested that he just said it was so because who was out there in the skies? Who was moving around in the skies? It was Lucifer. He couldn't say it was good because Lucifer was already there. He had free access to the atmosphere, to the skies, to the second heaven. So he never called it good. Turn in uh, to another couple of verses, this time uh, in Job. This is Job 9, uh, 5 and 7. It says this, He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. Isn't that what I've been talking about? Those very things. See, is when he, he flings Lucifer down, as it was, and all the destruction happens on the earth, he comes in judgment, and the way it's speaking about it, he turns the mountains over. He seals up the, the, the sun, as it were. He speaks to the sun, and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. I think Job is clearly uh, underscoring what God did in the judgment of the earth before the Adamic period. A record of God's judgment then after Lucifer's rebellion. He's angry. He's dealing with things. God judges the earth with a flood. He seals up the heavenly lights and the earth becomes a frozen ball, as it were. For an unknown period of time then, that's how the earth was. It was just frozen. A million, two million years, we don't know. Scientists tell us how old this planet is. And of course, if we go with this idea, we're not arguing with the scientists. We can say, yeah, I can believe there were prehistoric animals. I can believe that the Earth is millions, billions of years old. It's not an argument to us. We shouldn't be pitching arguments with scientists. We should, we should be trying to work out, have we got something wrong? They're not stupid. They've worked some things out. We say, well, does, do we have to adjust, not scripture, but our understanding of scripture a little bit so we can find some common ground here? And I think we find common ground here. So the Bible agrees then with prehistoric animals, with the planet being millions of years old. God then restores the earth. So we eventually now get to Genesis 1 and verse 2. The Spirit of God, like a dove it is, hovers over the waters. And now he's going to reconstruct the earth. So we've got to the point in the story where all this awful stuff that happened uh, in Genesis 1 one and through the gap to Genesis 1 and verse 2. 
So when we come together after the break, we will be uh, discovering what it is that, uh, that caused this conflict, this rebellion, to continue in this new reconstructed world. Uh, we would be hopeful that it would, it would be better and the mess would be sorted out. But you see, leaving Lucifer free, which he did, then it wasn't sorted out at all. You think, God, well, why did you do that, God? Why did you leave him? Why, if you know he's so terrible and awful and rebellious, why didn't you deal with him if you were going to reconstruct again? God had a plan, you see. A plan to create people who would be worthy to be the sons of God. And so he leaves him there as though he leaves opposition, friction to our lives, as it were. So we can win our spurs, we can grow into maturity. Remember, God's a warrior God. We mustn't lose sight of that. He is loving, but he is the captain of the hosts, the armies of God. There's something within the very heart and nature of God to raise up a people that would be his sons, his daughters, though he would be proud of. You might think, oh, that sounds a bit of a diabolical plot to me, Phil. Well, okay, that's just what I think. And you know, we're free to think what we're free to think about. Um, I could be wrong on that one, but it seems to me part of the answer, if only a small part of the answer. So we'll come back after the break and we'll, we'll see what he does in the Garden of Eden. Thank you. We're going to look at Eve's denial in this lesson and the underworld that which we can't see, but scripture is very clear about. The pre-Adamic race which rebelled under Lucifer's rule, I think were all cast into the uh, abyss or the pit. And uh, the only one free, as it were, to roam and to, to be allowed to be in the, in the air, in the, uh, in the skies, as it were, was Lucifer. He had been cast out now. He was no longer Lucifer. Uh, he was Satan. He was the devil. And it appears the, the fallen angels with him, they were free to move with him as well. We read, he inhabited the body of a snake. He came to Eve and he tempted and deceived her and her husband. So God at uh, Genesis, uh, as we were looking at in that previous lesson, he recreated the world, reconstructed the world. He put a man and a woman in it, and then Satan came in straight away. He wanted the world back. He hadn't given up his plan just because he was set back. He was going to come in and take control of things and have another assault on heaven, as it were. Something tragic, though, happened. God had given Adam and Eve rulership of the earth. Isn't that what Lucifer lost? 
he was really in charge of everything as though he were the king of the earth and all these uh, the, the nations were all subject to him he had lost it all and now god had placed this man and woman and he said you have dominion over the world imagine how angry and livid he would have felt these weak pathetic created beings are now the king of the world i am the king of the world genesis 1 and 26 in the authorized says let them have dominion over the earth together they had dominion husband and wife you could say king and queen i suppose if you have dominion then you're in rulership satan had a plan though didn't he he would regain his control of earth his plan was to deceive eve the reason eve fell and uh, this isn't a sexist statement you just have to report what's written there the reason that eve fell the word of god was not in her that's a bit harsh well it was adam's job to make sure that she received everything that he received from god if they were going to rule together they needed to know everything together whether she didn't care or was interested in that he told her everything we don't know whether he was too lazy to tell her everything i don't know if it's just a trait of man when you come home and your wife says well what happened and you say oh, it was all right and she usually says well that's not sufficient for me i need a lot more detail than that you know so i'm going to put the blame on adam not on the woman i think she would have wanted all the details when he had met with god and spoken with god he she wanted to know everything but i think he was probably a little bit lazy and reluctant uh, to share everything with us so see the word of god wasn't in her so when the temptation came what could she resist him with the responsibility i believe of church leaders today is to make sure we get the word of god into you without the word of god you can't resist him you don't even know what he's doing you don't know what his ploys are and somehow if i just keep telling you to be nice to people that's not sufficient to ward off the enemy and to walk in a world where he is seeking to defeat us and to destroy us. So the word of God is vital to us. Everyone would say how precious the word of God is, and yet it remains between the covers and people don't know what's written in there. So it's not really that precious. If you don't open the book, it's, it, it means nothing, really. We need to understand, and it needs to be broken down to us, and we need to understand the word. It's clear that God first spoke uh, to Adam, uh, even before Eve was on the scene. It's found in Genesis 2, 15 and 17. It says, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work and to take care of it and the lord god commanded the man you see you are free to eat from the tree of the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat of it you will surely die 
Now, he did relay some of that to Eve, but even when she quotes it, she doesn't quote it quite right. We won't go into all the little details of that. Eve obviously wasn't there when God first communicated this truth to Adam. His job was to communicate it to his wife. I'm going to look now at Eve's denial of her covenant God. It sounds a little bit technical, this, so uh, just you might have to stick with me a little bit as we, we go through it. Uh, the, the devil, he only knew God by one name. That name was Elohim. The name Elohim it means the powerful one. So uh, as we read Genesis 1 and 1, we say, in the beginning, Elohim. Now, if it ends in im, it's plural in the Hebrew. So it would be, in the beginning, gods created the heaven and the earth. So Satan would only, or Lucifer, Satan, would only know God with the name of Elohim, the powerful one who made everything. When God came and created Adam and Eve, he never used the name Elohim. It says in uh, Genesis 2 and 7, the Lord God formed the man. The interpretation of that word, the Lord God, is the name Jehovah. Jehovah. In the Hebrew, Jehovah is Yahweh. In the beginning, uh, sorry, the Lord God in, in uh, Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed uh, man. Jehovah it was that formed man. Lucifer knows God as Elohim. Adam and Eve know God as Jehovah. He's presented himself as two different identities, really. So when God creates man, he uses his covenant name. And the angels didn't know him by that covenant name, Jehovah. I'm going to point you now, and we'll come back to that story in a, a little while, about how God presented himself to other people. When God presented himself to Abraham, he said his name was, and if you read it, you read the Lord, but the translation is El Shaddai. So when God presents himself to Abraham, he presents himself as El Shaddai, which is the God of heaven, not the all-powerful one. When he presents himself to Moses, because God is now going to enter into a covenant relationship with the children of Israel, he reveals himself to Moses as Jehovah. Jehovah. And it says that he never presented himself to Abraham as Jehovah, but he is presenting himself now to Moses as Jehovah. It is through Moses they're going to get the law. And the law means they're going to enter into a covenant with God. So this name Jehovah is a covenant name. A covenant name. So when he presented himself to Adam and Eve, this is a covenant relationship. They are sinless. They're perfect in his sight. 
There's no need for sacrifices for them because no sin has been committed. He said, I am your Lord Jehovah. I am your covenant God. If you walk before me and just do, I will bless you. I will look after you. I will live in the midst of you. I will be a blessing to you. And then when he presents himself to Moses, he presents himself to him as Jehovah, not as El Shaddai or Elohim, but that because he wants to enter into a covenant relationship with the people of Israel. They are going to keep the law. In the breaking of the law, they're going to have to offer sacrifices which will bring them back into covenant. So the idea of entering into covenant, there is always the shedding of blood to deal with the sin problem that brings us back into covenant with God. You're in covenant with God. If the covenant is broken, you know what to do. You come to him and with the blood of Jesus on your hands, you lift them up to God. And when he sees the blood, then everything is forgiven. He moves on. Really, the blood is on our hearts. So every time God looks at you, he sees the blood and he forgives you. He forgives you. He forgives you. He forgives you because we have this covenant relationship with him. So as I said, Adam and Eve were covenant people, created covenant people. The children of Israel were to become covenant people. There had to be the shedding of the blood before they could enter into the covenant. Remember when he gave them the book of the law and they said, we will follow every word of this. That was in their heart's intent. And then there was the sacrifices made and they entered into a covenant. And we today are in covenant with God. Another little example of this name and the covenant thing is in Noah. There's another example here. If we read the account of Noah and the flood, that's in Genesis 6, 7 and 8, it's illustrated for us again. Let's turn to that. So the, the whole flood is chapters 6, 7 and 8. Now when God speaks to Noah... He's not initially in covenant with him. So when he, he presents himself to him, he presents himself to him as Elohim. Once there is mention of a covenant, and he cuts a covenant, doesn't he, with him, because we get the, the rainbow, which was a covenant, that's the first time covenants are mentioned. When he mentions the sacrifices, he starts to talk about himself as Jehovah. I'll just take you to these verses. So if you come with me to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 18, he says this to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. So in this, he is going to reveal himself to Noah as Jehovah. That's always what he does. I am the Lord, your God, the Lord Jehovah. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of every living creature, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you, uh, uh, sorry, for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Notice God, he calls him God. 
Just as Elohim had commanded him, he does it. Now, we'll just read on. Then it starts in chapter 7. The Lord. Hang on. You see, if you just read the Lord and God and mix them all up together and think it's all the same, it's not. Again, it's this issue of every word as being important. So in, in verse 22, he says, just as God commanded, then in the very next verse, chapter 7 of verse 1, the Lord said to Noah. So all of a sudden, he's changed from being Elohim, the all-powerful one, to your covenant Lord. And let's see what he talks about now. He's talking about covenant Lord. The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I found you righteous in this generation. Now, take with you seven of every kind of clean animal. See, we were just reading about the twos. So why is there now seven? Why are there seven clean ones, but two of all the others? Because the clean ones are going to be used for sacrifices to God. And through the sacrifices, you could only sacrifice a clean animal. Through the sacrifices, we will enter into a covenant. See, his plan was to enter into a covenant with Noah. So it goes on, the Lord Jehovah then said to Noah, go into the ark and all your family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, and keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made, and Noah did as the Lord commanded, not as God commanded. Okay, so we see the different... Uh, you, you say, Phil, that's a long-winded way of explaining very little to us. Well, okay, what we're going to do now is go back to the story of Eve in the garden. Satan does not know God by the name of Jehovah. He doesn't know it. Satan couldn't use the name Jehovah. The only name that he can use about God when he talks to Eve is Elohim. He says to Eve, did God really say? Did Elohim really say? Okay, that's what he says to her. Did Elohim really say? He couldn't say, did Jehovah really say? Because he didn't know him as Jehovah. There was no covenant relationship with the angels at all. Jehovah is God's name only revealed to those he's in covenant with. What should Eve have said to Satan? She should have said, I don't know who you're talking about. Did Elohim say? Who's this Elohim that you're talking about? Who is he? I don't know who he is. Do you mean Jehovah? See, completely different. Completely different. His name is not Elohim. I don't know any Elohim. 
who do you mean? Now, she does a terrible thing. She calls the Lord Elohim. Now you're thinking, is that really serious? Yes, it is. She has a relationship which is a covenant relationship with God. Okay, and he promises to care for her and look after her every step of the way. And Satan comes along and suggests that he's not a covenant God. He is the creator, the all-powerful one, and his name is Elohim. She drops the name Jehovah and responds to him and calls God Elohim. <laughs> is it that important? Yes, it is. It's of vital importance. When Eve said, Elohim has said, she denied him as Jehovah. Her denial of the covenant God is equivalent to our denial of the power of the blood to keep us safe from Satan's attack. You don't realise how important the words that come out of your mouth are. See, I remember training to be a school teacher and there's this big discussion about what comes first, thought or word? Word or thought? And they're still discussing it today. See, do your words come out of what you're thinking or do the words that you use form your thinking? You could say, well, Philip could go both ways. Well, if it could go both ways, you need to be very careful about what you say because what you say is causing you to think in a certain way. So when someone is saying something and saying something, even if they're not persuading you, they have already persuaded themselves by her listening to what Satan said to her. And we don't know if Satan just came the once and said it once. We don't know that. He might have come to her more than one time. And he keeps talking about Elohim, Elohim. And somehow he gets into her head and instead of her calling him Jehovah, she calls him Elohim. He's already persuaded her, you see. He's drawn her away from the relationship that she had with God. The blood of Jesus, it's a very sacred, precious thing. It's real. It's tangible. It flowed through the veins of Jesus and it was shed on the ground and this blood is powerful in our lives today. It is the blood of Jesus that seals our covenant relationship with God. See, she had a covenant relationship with God, but she, it appears she threw it away. We have a covenant relationship with God that is sealed by his blood. You've only got to mention the fact that the blood has sealed the covenant that you've got with God and is that which protects you from the devil. Have I got to use the word blood? 
and, and mention the blood. Well, one, you've got to understand that the blood is something that was real, that sealed the whole deal between you and God. And if you're confronting the enemy or you're needing to convince yourself, you need to talk about the blood. We overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. We overcome him by testifying to what the blood of Jesus has done for us. We are in covenant with a living God because of the blood. If we don't use the terminology of the blood, it's the same as what she did in just saying, Elohim has said this. She threw away that, that relationship so carelessly with her lips. Dangerous thing to do, you see. God has a covenant promise to keep us safe. If we deny the fact of the power of the blood and this covenant relationship has been sealed with the blood, then we have no power against the enemy. If we deny the blood, that means we do not believe it has the power to do what the Bible says it does. Do you want to know what the Bible says it does? Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> it ensures us victory over Satan. We overcome you, Satan, because we're sealed by the blood of Jesus and you cannot touch us because a covenant God has entered into a covenant with us. It's not me that's going to crush you, Satan. God himself will crush you. And I know that because the blood has sealed the covenant relationship I have with God. I am trusting in the blood of Jesus, you see. You're thinking, oh, this sounds like old Pentecostal preaching, you know. We don't talk about this stuff today. It's messy. We need to. The blood sealed a covenant relationship. I know what sealed the covenant relationship. The blood has been applied to my heart. And when God looks at me, he forgives me because of the blood that has been applied. That's the covenant relationship. It ensures us victory over Satan, it says. It redeems us out of the devil's hand. Once he held me, he was my spiritual overlord, as it were. But I've been released from him now by the blood of Jesus Christ. When Christ shed his blood, that he broke me free from Satan's control of my life. It purchased for me forgiveness. He paid a price, you see, with his blood. I'm purchased. I belong to God. I cannot belong to Satan anymore. She somehow sold out on God by calling him Elohim instead of Jehovah or Yahweh. It cleanses our hearts from sin. So I don't know how this works, but the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience. We've all sinned, and yet somehow it's got removed. The guilt has been removed. The stain of sin has been removed. I don't know how that works. Why aren't we carrying around all the pain of what we've done and the nasty things that we've said and done and our consciences? Why aren't we not being able to sleep at night? Because the blood of Jesus has cleansed our consciences. The stain of sin has been removed from our lives. 
just as if we'd never sinned. It makes us holy. I'm holy tonight. That means I'm separated unto God because of the blood. It gives me access into his presence. Just as Cain lifted up his hands and the blood of the lamb was on it and he was acceptable to God, so we are acceptable to him. And the blood cries out continually for mercy. Remember when Cain's blood went into the ground and that verse that says, the blood cries out, and it was crying out, justice for me, justice for me. It's as though God sees blood. I don't understand. I mean, it's all figurative talk, but it's powerful. It's real stuff. Real blood was shed. And God said, the blood is crying out to me. And, and the blood of Jesus, when it's applied to us, it cries out to God, mercy, mercy, Lord, mercy, and mercy. And because he sees the blood. Eve denied her covenant relationship with God. Satan regained his office as king. As soon as she said it, you see. Now, we say she ate the fruit and that did it. It was a bit, a bit more than, that was disobedience. But there was something more serious going on here. Her identity, her identity of who God was, it shifted. As soon as he was king of the earth again, immediately he released the demons from the abyss. A whole number of them came up because he had the keys now, the ability to do it. God had somehow lost control of things. In a way, because he had delegated authority to these two and they had given it to Satan. God couldn't, couldn't just override it, couldn't jump into the midst of it. He doesn't do that in your life either. If he has said do something and you don't do it, we have to follow through on the consequences. He just doesn't dive in all the time. And he couldn't dive in here. He had delegated the authority. He has said to them, you have dominion over the earth. And what they do, they said, oh, you can have it, Satan. We listen to what you say. And so they gave away dominion. And once the dominion was given away, Satan had the ability to release a number of evil demon spirits. The, the disembodied spirits of the pre-Adamic race, I believe. All of those that were locked up in the abyss. And remember when he confronted a demon on more than one occasion? Remember what they said to him? Don't send us back into the abyss. Send us into the pigs but don't send us back to the bottomless pit. Sounds awful, doesn't it? Bottomless. A sense of constantly falling down and down and down and down. A lot of them still remain in the abyss, but they're going to be released in the end times. It says this in Revelation 9, 7 and 11. Probably they'll be released through the Great Tribulation. And uh, if you want a picture of an evil spirit, this is it. They're like locusts. That means they swarm. There are millions of them. See, there were millions and millions of angels. We don't know how many millions and millions. 
even the verses that we do have describe uh, just millions and millions of them. The locusts look like horses preparing for battle. On their heads, they wore something that looked like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Well, that's not a surprise. Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth was like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. He's obviously talking about those that come out during the time of tribulation. They had a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew was, excuse me, Abdodoin. I probably not said that right. And in the Greek, Apollyon, or the destroyer. They're released. They're released into the world. This is what we're fighting against. It isn't just the devil with bad thoughts. He has a host of fallen angels. Millions of them, potentially. And millions of demons at his disposal. This is who we're at war against. This is our struggle. This is how God matures us. We were born, as I said right at the beginning, into a war zone. It's a battle all the way. It doesn't stop. The ancient Jews, they talked about this present age. This present age was there, there was strife and conflict and all sorts of evil. And then the ancient Jews, they spoke about the age to come. When God would come, we know it's to send Jesus and sort all this out. But we live in the present age, you see. This is where the struggle is, the battle is. And he is so crafty and cunning and devious and powerful and beautiful and splendid and wise. I mean, he was at the very throne of God. He understood. He was there. That's who we're battling against. Thank God that God protects us from lots of it. But then he exposes us as well for our own benefit, that we might be strong and that we might grow and that the love of God might develop in our hearts. Hmm. We'll finish this lesson. Uh, on a, well, I'm going to say a more happier note. Well, I don't think it gets happy until next week. Anyway, uh, but we're going to look at the, the regions of the underworld. You want to know what's going on, don't you, under there? Okay, the regions of the underworld. Uh, the first one I've got on my list here is Shell. It says in Deuteronomy 32 and 22, For the fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realms of the depths below. 
Sheol is the habitation of the unregenerate man and woman who dies. They go into it at death, awaiting the judgment. People who die with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they simply go into the presence of God. Their spirit goes into his presence. But unregenerate people, their spirits go into this place, Sheol, waiting for their resurrection, when they will be given new bodies, or bodies, obviously it's new because their old body will have decayed, and they will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. They're held in Sheol. The second uh, place of the underworld is this place called Hades. We read about it. it the Greek is uh, uh, Hades. The Hebrew is that same word, Sheol. We read about it in Isaiah 38 and 10. I said, this is Isaiah speaking, in the prime of my life, must I go through the gates of death, to Sheol, Hades, and be robbed of the rest of my years? A place once filled with the saints waiting for the coming Messiah. So when you read about Hades, it is where all the saints went and all the unregenerate went. We went to one place called Hades. There were two compartments. There was a compartment for those that were waiting for the Messiah to come. And there was one uh, compartment. There was a big chasm between the two and a compartment where the unregenerate that only cared about themselves. Jesus speaks about this. Remember, we're not sure if it's a parable or whether he was speaking of something literal. He, he talks about a man uh, sitting at the gate, very poor, and there's the rich man, and uh, uh, one dies, and he goes to the bosom of Abraham, which is the, the good side, and we see the rich man. He goes to the other side, and he's in torment. That is the picture of Hades. It says in Psalm 16, 9 and 10, obviously this is uh, David speaking, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So David went down into this place called Hades. And he said, you will not let your Holy One see decay. He knew, he was prophesying that one day the Messiah would come down into this place, Hades, where he was waiting, and he would be taken up from there. Isaiah 5 and 14 says, the grave enlarges its appetite. It's talking about the two sections here, the, the, the section for those that were waiting for the Messiah where they had to go into, and the other section where the unregenerate went into. But once the, those that were waiting for the Messiah were taken out, there was no reason for this, this good side, as it were, to remain anymore. It was finished with because those now who die in the Lord go to his presence. So he enlarges Hades. So it's only one compartment now for all the regenerate to go. It says in Matthew 27, 51 and 53, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tomb and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. This is an account of where Jesus goes down into Hades. 
and all those who are waiting for the Messiah are released, as it were, and they can go up into the presence of the Lord. But some of them, not all, they have bodies manifested. Now, people have said, oh, have they still got these bodies? And blah, 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 blah. Uh, we don't know. Um, I tend to think that when Jesus went up to heaven, all these saints that were given bodies, they were the cloud that went up. I don't think it was a cloud cloud. I think it was a cloud of people. And they went up with the Lord until people could see them no more. They went into another dimension. Just as Jesus had a physical body, they too possibly had physical bodies. Some might argue and say, oh no, that's possible. No one gets their, their resurrection body until Jesus comes again. Well, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, so, and then we, so we see this happening, this, this opening up. Uh, this one. The third area we've got of this underworld is a place called the pit or the deep, or the abyss. It says in Luke, and I've already made reference to this in 8 and 31, and they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. See, they had come from the abyss. They knew how terrible it was. Don't send us back there. We'd rather go into an, an animal's body than go into the abyss. And please don't send us out of the region. We'd rather go into a pig than be sent away. We must stay where we are. That was the discussion they had with Jesus. People say, well, why didn't he just send them into the abyss? You see, he does things in order, like his father. So if a demon leaves a person, he's just here again to find someone else to enter into. The fourth is Tartarus. The word means prison. Remember I spoke about those uh, fallen angels who made love with the, uh, the daughters of men and they produced this Nephilim. Giants in the earth, were they? And then everyone was corrupted, as it were. These fallen angels, that's where they end up. A place called Tartarus. <laughs> Let's go into that story about these angels making love with men. In Genesis 3, after Satan had deceived Eve, we see that God appears on the scene and he, he curses. He curses everything that's there. He curses the earth. He puts a curse on Adam and Eve and he puts a curse on Satan. I've seen something of the curse that he puts on Adam and Eve, something of a blessing. <laughs> thinking, didn't sound like a blessing to me, Phil. Well, sometimes God would say, I allow Satan to do this to you, but he can't go beyond that. You understand? So there has a blessing attached to it, even though he cursed them. He said, this is the limit of which he can go. In Genesis 3.15, this is what he says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He said, I'll tell you this now, Satan. Woman will have a son and that son will crush your head. He will destroy you. You will bite at him, but he will destroy you. I'm sure 
immediately he thought this would be Eve's daughter that would do that. Or maybe some other daughter later, because we know whose son it was that was going to do it. It was going to be the son of Mary, who would be the one who would crush Satan's head. It says her seed. It didn't say his seed. It wasn't Adam's seed. It was her seed. This is interesting. Just by the way here, when you read the two genealogies okay, of, of, of Jesus coming, uh, we follow one that it goes from uh, Abraham all the way down, like a kingly line found in Matthew. In Luke, it's, the genealogy starts with, uh, it starts with Adam and it runs all the way down. If you study them very carefully, something happens when it gets to David. It, it runs pretty well. There's always a few discrepancies and, and odd people missing, but just generally go down there. And there's good reasons for that. I just don't know what they all are. Okay. But it gets, to, it gets to David, and it says David's son, Solomon. But on the other one, it says David's son, Nathan. And you go, what's gone wrong here? And if you follow the Solomon line down, you find you get to Joseph. Isn't that amazing? He was of that line. If you follow the other line down, the Nathan line, don't remember, Solomon was cursed because of what he did. But Nathan's sign is blessed. You follow the Nathan line down, and he ends up with Mary. Isn't that interesting? Mary and Joseph, if you trace their lines back, they, had, they came both from David's line. But one from Solomon, the cursed line, Joseph, and one from Nathan, the blessed line. And it was the woman's seed. It would be of that line that would do it, not of Joseph's line. Amazing, isn't it? As you read this stuff, how it all comes together, God's working it out so perfectly, so wonderfully. So Satan's thinking, I've got to do something. If the seed of the woman is going to crush my head, I need to mess this all up. So what he does, he thinks I've got to corrupt the seed of woman. So he, he has a plan. He will block this one to be born to destroy him. And so what he does, he sends these angels to make love with the daughters of men. And so they come and they populate the world with these mixture of angelic people being, Nephilim, filling the whole earth. When men began to increase in number on the earth, the daughters were born to them, the sons of God, Wicked angels saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. I said before the flood come about 1,500 years later. By the time of the flood, everyone was born of angelic human birth. Apart from one person who had somehow come through the whole lot, and that was Noah. Isn't that amazing? 
God looks in the earth and he finds favour. He found favour because he was of pure birth and not of this corrupted birth. That's why every intent of the heart of man, every thought of man was evil. <laughs> you think, that's a bit of an exaggeration in the Bible? Every thought, every intention evil? But if you can see, because they were sons and daughters of corrupt angels, wicked evil angels that had proliferated the world, you can see how it, it's true. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your own family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. His wife was not righteous, nor his sons, nor his daughters-in-law. Because we know after the flood, there were giants again in the world. Through the daughters-in-law, this seed had come through. And we read later that David destroyed all these giants that had come through in this land. Remember, he took five stones and he only used one. He killed the other giants that were the result of this fall, this angelic thing. You say, Philip, is this all true? Well, I'm pinning it all together. Um, uh, would, I, would I stake my whole life on it? We can't. As I said to you, there are things we know and things we believe and things we think. So I'm making a suggestion to you. And it's like, it's amazing. But I wouldn't be surprised if it all hung together. And it was all true and the reality of it is wonderful to see. The reason then for the second flood was to destroy this awful thing that had happened in the world. This mixture of angels and human beings. The angels that slept with the women were condemned to Tartarus. We have enough scriptures to support this. It says in 2 Peter 2.4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held in judgment, that's who he's talking about. In Jude 6, and the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their own home, these he's kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And 1 Peter 3, 18 and 20, for Jesus died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, and made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It is only a few people, eight in all, who were saved through water. Those he ministered to in Hades, I believe, were these fallen angels who produced this Nephilim in the world. It says he preached to them, or he proclaimed to them. What on earth did he say to them? He said, your plan has failed. And now I'm stamping on Satan's head. You never succeeded in what you planned to do. He then rose from the dead and all the saints rose with him.
The last place I have to mention to you is a place called Gehenna. It's called the Lake of Fire. Matthew 25, 41 says this, Then he will say to those on his left, you remember this when he's, uh, he's separating the sheep from the goats, then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That will be the inhabitation first for the Antichrist, then for the false prophet, and then the devil, and then those angels. That is in the future, though, he's talking about. We are contending today with those demons the evil spirits, the disembodied spirits of the race or races that existed on the earth before Adam's race. They have one purpose, these spirits. It is to harass us. It is to attack us. It is to gain and enter into our bodies for a habitation to continue their rebellion under Satan's control against God and his eternal kingdom. Next week we're going to look at the battle that we're engaged in. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please come on back next week for our last lesson in the Spiritual Conflict module. If you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can do so by heading over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation. And don't forget, you can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy. Music